A long time ago, a human named Manu was visited by a fish who warned him that this age of man would soon be ended by a great flood. The gods built a boat big enough to bear all life forms up above the rising tide, and meanwhile, Manu was tasked with gathering enough seeds and grain to feed everyone, to restart life anew. In many versions of the story, the fish reveals himself to be Matsya, an incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu. All over the world, people tell stories of great floods which sweep away the cities of the earth, leaving only a few survivors to build a new world from the wreckage of the old. It's in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's in the Old Testament, it's in ancient Chinese mythology, it's in the legends of the Inuit and Eskimo people, it's everywhere. During the last ice age, as the waters of the world shrunk and froze, sea levels dropped, revealing huge swathes of land once sunk under the waves, including a land bridge known as Beringia, which stretched from the tundras of Siberia all the way east to Alaska. As the planet warmed, the sea swallowed up the land again. In most of these stories, humanity survives, but many humans are not so lucky. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask poets to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy tales they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and joining me are Boyega Odubanjo, Joshua Judson and Kai Miller. Just a note to say that this episode may contain adult themes and strong language, so listener discretion is advised that out the way hello everyone hi hi Hi. how's everyone doing good decent (laughs) good to hear it so we're at the end of the world gathered around the campfire huddled there for warmth telling stories to one another why are we doing that what's the point even on the edge of survival humans have always told stories to each other what drives us to do that Um, boyega yeah i think that one of the reasons is that, say, end of the world, etc. Stories that we can tell each other, stories that we can make up, are better than the stories that we may be living through. We want a distraction. How about you, Kai? I think our lives inherently make no sense. Uh, <laughs> and, and we all try to make sense of it. I mean, there's, there's such a compulsion to insert narrative into just the mess of things and and we all do that from the beginning we tell the stories of how we became writers why we did this why we 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 convert every aspect of our life into a story i mean there really is nothing inherently storified about our lives but i think that's how we make sense of it so you know we think in terms of stories uh, we make decisions based on the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and our families uh you know, we, we believe in this kind of providence that, you know, I did this because my grandfather did that. You know, our stories keep on going back and back and stretching forth in different ways. It's it's the thing that is most human about us, that need to tell the story of ourselves. And and of course, you know, the story of ourselves is, is the story of the end. Uh, I think inherently this, all stories are the fear of dying. And so when else would we tell stories but at that end point. That's, if anything, what we've been training for <laughs> throughout our evolution. Yeah. How about you, Joshua? 
the idea of like finding order in chaos or like forcing chaos into order like that's like often my sense of like when i've succeeded in writing a poem i feel like i've taken a jumble of stuff and applied like a narrative or a shape to it so like just to echo what kai was saying basically about the innate storytelling proclivity of us that would you like to exercise your innate storytelling proclivity and give us the myth that you've chosen to rewrite for us yeah all right i have gone for the myth is it a myth we can touch on that later of the green man the green man is sort of like a folklorish figure who appears in like pagan iconography in great britain in europe the Green Man is a very popular pub name for this reason. And it's um, in the images that you see often uh, above the stone in like the keystone of churches that were built around a certain time. Um, the Green Man is a man either covered by leaves or like whose face is covered by leaves or his face is made up of leaves or sometimes has vegetation like issuing from his mouth and his nose and stuff like that. There's like a variance of how it's depicted. Um, so I've decided to riff off that. Great, let's hear it. <laughs> the Green Man. I swear by every tree and blade of grass on forest wreck, I'm coming back again. I swear by every trapped and vibrant bird in the arboretum aviary. I swear by all the boulevards in town, Uni, Lenton, Radford and Gregory. I swear by the Aggie Canadid geese, geeing at the big end to away fans on the Victoria embankment. I swear by ducks taking flight over city ground. I swear by the black water in the fountain on Market Square, and that lad, one summer, snorkeling in it. His picture in the post, his small body floating like a lily. A fag end floating like a lily in an ashtray outside the green man. It stopped raining and the pavement's giving up its smell. The hanging baskets are dripping on our shoulders and Chris and I are drunk, talking about the initial misgivings we held of each other. How they've gone now. Drunk and glowing in the half light we hug. Moths are dancing around the heat lamps. Someone's uncle shambles drunk up the street. We don't say love, don't have to. It's there in the shoots crawling out our mouths, in the buds that grow from the shoots, bursting into leaves enough to hide in. There's leaves enough to hide in in the yard. No one in this South East London house share knows whose job it is to prune the trees back, so we duck, we weave our way to the front door. We let it grow. We get leaves in our hair. We let the spiders build homes in the hoods of our jackets. Branches creep up the windows. When we cross paths in the kitchen, we say, I can't believe the yard, the state of it. The leaves give us a dappled natural light in all our rooms, a rhythm. I come home one day and see something through the branches. A green man lent up against the door frame. The green man leans against the door frame, casting a handsome shadow. 
a bottle in his hand. I'm on the bed and thirsty. I'm in my head and thirsty. Have you ever picked up a full bottle, found it empty? Have you ever picked up a baby, felt how heavy it is with dumb potential? Have you ever held a man, found him light, yourself wanting, your head bright, your breath heavy? I don't know how to say it better. I was on the bed and thirsty, in need of something to clutch. We had drunk everything else in the house. There was only empty bottles and his mouth. A clutch of empty bottles at the mouth of this path, leading us into the park. I'd brought the green man back to Knott's, wanted to show him what I was made of. We walked slow and quiet through Forest Wreck. My man knows each of the trees by name, lays a hand on every trunk as we pass. We look into branches, see nesting birds. A crow flies down and lands a plastic bag. A wasp buzzes past my ear towards the road, becomes a motorcycle caning it up Mansfield Road. Then a trail of black smoke. The green man sighs like branches in the wind. New blossom wilting in the acrid air. New blossom beginning to wilt midair outside St. Michael's, Litchfield, Dad's wedding. My brother and I offer our arms for our grandparents, help them out of the car and into the church. We check and make sure. We quiet and dutiful. We sneaking round the corner to choke anxiety with nicotine. In the background of the selfie we take together, a pair of stone eyes watches. A crushed fag end on the shoe, and he pockets his vape. A pair of stone eyes sees me pat his back. A pair of stone eyes surrounded by leaves. The green man carved above the doorway of the church. A pair of stone eyes that see everything I've grown to be. I'm taking what is grown of me, what is green of me, and making a man. In Murat Food Centre, the green man held a bunch of fresh dill and it got greener. He followed me as I browsed, breathing life into the aubergines and the green chilies. Everywhere he went, he left it brighter. I sparked up on the curb outside, dropped my fag end in a drain. He said, your idea of yourself is killing you and everyone else, it's killing me. I turned round to reply and found him gone. I swear I'm gonna bring him back somehow. I swear by every tree and blade of grass. So what appealed to you about this figure that's kind of everywhere, but sort of hidden in plain sight? Well, in my work thus far, like probably my two like big cornerstones of my poetics, if it's not too ridiculous and pretentious to say that, um, are masculinity and landscape and how those two things interact and like getting into like magical realism territory of like having those two things speak to each other and 
I was thinking about Robin Hood on like a Nottingham patriotism vibe. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I was like, oh, no, not feeling that at all. Um, then I remembered the Green Man. Can you tell us about like when you first became aware of like this Green Man figure? I really don't know. Possibly mentioned in passing on like an architecture podcast or something like that. And like being like, oh yeah, I've seen that about. I've seen I've seen pubs called that. I've like, but never realised it was it had like pagan roots and it was this ancient figure, old old story that has just been lost to time. Really. Mm. What did you find out about the Green Man when you were delving into the story? Um, just that basically, there's no like narrative attached. It's more of like you know how in ancient Greece and stuff there would be goddesses for everything and like you might have like an icon of this person like to help you with your housework or that like you know it's like similar to that and that is like more I had a chat in the pub with my local like folklore guy and and we came to the yeah we've got one of that like we've got everything in Nottingham like um (laughs) guy called Liam Mills who does a podcast called history of the weird midlands if that's all right to plug um that and we sort of, during our conversation, decided that the Green Man was more of a meme than a myth. It just, it just is a thing that happens and is there and is like ephemeral in that way. And it doesn't have like a through line. I found that quite difficult when write, writing the poem because there wasn't the narrative to fall back on. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I was thinking. You were saying that it was difficult working with uh, this kind of character that didn't have a story behind him. Mm. And I just thought, how freeing. And... Uh, I mean, I imagine it probably was both things, but but the, but it just made me suddenly think about how many, how many figures are there like that who who are in the world, uh, figures from, from some culture, from some narrative, but who are just there without their stories, mm. Mm. and isn't that a kind of wonderful thing to start to give those characters back their stories, right. or to offer them stories? I mean, I think that's kind of one of the wonderful things about what you're doing here. Thank you. Yeah, um, no, that was definitely like my major, the main thing that I wanted to do was to bring this archaic, like pagan figure into the present day, bring uh, give it a body, give it a, like a things to do, give it things to like um, make it live. Like talk to me about the role of masculinity in this work. Cause you were talking about how the environment and masculinity kind of interact with each other uh-huh. yeah good question and uh, that's i guess what i'm trying to figure out and like figure out for myself in the writing you know moments when the landscape can be both or either a friend or foe like the landscape can be hard and stoic and unrelenting and the landscape can also be open and like uh, life-giving and tender um and just how those two things are at play talking of landscapes emotional and otherwise i'd love to pass it over to kai can you tell us what story you've chosen to rewrite all right so there's this strange little story that you might hear sometimes in jamaica i I know about three versions of it it always involves some sisters sometimes they're twins sometimes they're three sisters and it's the youngest anyway they all come to a river a dry river and they need to cross. They've, they've been picking fruit before. Uh, and in order to cross the river, uh, they need to pay a toll. And that is a portion of the fruit that they picked. 
Uh, in some versions of the story, it's the river who sings a song demanding this toll. In other versions, kind of very frighteningly, it's an old man who comes to them and demands um, a part of this thing. Uh, one of the sisters always refuses to pay the toll. And for this, the river swells up suddenly and she's washed away. But that phenomenon is also very common in Jamaica. Um, how the river could just come down. Uh, I mean, we have dry rivers all the time, but in suddenly the season can change and you don't hear the water coming down from the mountain, but something that was dry and, you know, just just there like um, like a relic, it can just in a flash fill up with water and tragedy can happen. And if you don't know the landscape, you don't know these things. Um, so I decided to deconstruct the, that story um and you know probably see what lives were hiding behind it uh and probably why did we tell that story in the first place uh yeah great i'd love to hear it so the story of the dry river the story of the dry river is the story of stones like giant turtles sun-baked hot to the touch of bare feet sneaking up the mountain like a path leading home the story of the path leading home is the story of a little girl who would never again reach home, would never again take the zigzag path up from the river and then across the stone church, would never again stand in front of the door, a door whose threshold she would never again cross. The story of the little girl is the story of her feet, nimble, strong, skipping along the stones like turtles, like the leftover shells of some forgotten history. The story of our forgotten histories is the story of our everyday, how the world keeps ending over and over like a chorus. The story of the little girl who never made it home is the story of her sister who did make it home. Tell me which tragedy is greater, the one who was carried away or the one who had to carry the news. The story of the girl who made it home is the story of her mother standing in the doorway, the open door like a wound, her open mouth like a wound. The girl who made it home must say the words over and over like a chorus, dry river come down, dry river come down, I'll wash our way. The story of the dry river is the story of our summers, though this isn't true. We do not have summers. This is how we translate one landscape into the language of another. The story of the dry river is the story of the seasons as I know them. There are only two, though we call them by different names, dry season or wet season, the time of drought or the time of the hurricane, the time of the tamarind or the time of the mangoes. The story of the dry river is the story of our dried dams, or dried reservoirs, or pipes without water. If you do not know such things, you do not know my country. You do not know of the waterless world, the starving birds, how the hills can set themselves on fire each night. The story of the dry river is the story of the river's sister. 
The story of the come-down river is the story of sudden water. Water so big, so unnecessarily angry, you did not hear it coming down the mountain. Water so sudden it can sweep a girl off her feet. The story of the come-down river is the story of September. How it comes like a cloud or else it comes with the clouds how it breaks over islands how a season can change in a day how a river can rise in a second the story of the come down river is the story of the end of the world just ask the mother still frozen in the doorway her mouth still open like a wound the surface of the story is not unlike the surface of water so smooth, so innocent, you do not always see what lies underneath, the stones like giant turtles, the drowned bodies. In my country, they tell me the story of the dry river is the story of a girl who never paid the toll of crossing the river. They tell me it is the story of her selfishness. They tell me she is the cause of her own dying. But I think this is just how we make myths out of things too hard to understand. How a river could come down just so just like that how the world can come down on us sometimes so sudden not even a warning or no warning you didn't know how to read the story of the unheard warning is the story of the birds that had been singing another song in another key the dogs who had been barking a different note because they felt the change of the season in their bones and even now do you hear the birds singing another song the dogs growling a new note, the feel of something impending in their bones, how we stand, each one of us, in our open doorways, like a wound, waiting on the end of the world. So, when did you first come across this story? Oh, wow. Uh, I can't remember years ago. I couldn't have been that young because I'd driven <laughs> somewhere. Uh, I remember that. And, and I heard and it was just a kind of wonderful storyteller who who, who told it in the most kind of frightening way because she's telling stories for children. And I thought that's one of the worst stories you could tell. <laughs> it was, uh, but but it was all built around this kind of song that kept on building, and I, I, I just it was it's very evocative, and it stayed with me. Um, and because I'm a nerd, I kept on looking it up, and, mm. and so I found it in different kinds of different people who have done kind of ethnographic work in Jamaica. They've kind of collected the stories from different places, so, so so I see how it's changed a little. But yeah, the first time I must have been like eighteen, nineteen, something like that. It <clears throat> seems like it has the cadence of a cautionary tale yeah i think so uh even though yeah i mean i i think i think really it's it's supposed to be a story about you know why we should uh be kind and generous why we shouldn't hold on to things and that's good you know because if you're not kind you'll die uh, <laughs> Obviously, which, yeah. which feels a little extreme uh, <laughs> but you know probably the world could do some of that right now but 
But I also thought it was it was a story about uh, a landscape that I know, um, and it's a story about the seasons as I know them. Uh, because you know, when you grow up in a place like Jamaica, which is you know obviously different from a place like England, you hear different things. At, at first, um, I thought we didn't have seasons. We it's just it's hot, um, the whole you know from December to December it's hot. But we do have seasons. It's 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 a very different kind of seasons, and the story has everything to do with the changing of the seasons. Um, and I think I wanted to explore uh, some of that, uh, explore some something of the landscape that is different, that can be uh, beautiful but dangerous if you don't understand it. I mean, what I didn't say explicitly in in the poem, and I guess what is kind of fundamentally disturbing me about it, is the fact that the that the person who drones is a girl, and the mm. The energy of what drowns her is always masculine. Mm -hmm. It's um, the, the dry river always kind of comes off as a male figure, or sometimes it's actually this old man. And and just something disturbs me about this old man who presides over a little girl's death. Right. Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, I'm not the only one who should be creeped out by that, right? Uh -huh. That, that yeah, is, yeah, yeah, is kind of sure. creepy, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there, was, there was something about fairy tales when you were just like actually revisiting them be like hang on a second that's absolutely horrifying and we I, get used right. to people's deaths being very discardable I know or you know just just how we see different things which are very kind of frightening like like you know the like Red Riding Hood I mean that big bad wolf clearly raped her right and we can't sit but you know it's a clear metaphor of that and you're just like oh my god how do we teach children this story mm. it's anyway but uh, no but that, <laughs> no but that's a that's a very clear lineage if you like of the stories yeah. that for instance i'm still being told don't go into the woods uh, at night don't stray from the path and it's uh. it's very powerful because it's connected to these things that you've been told literally since the cradle yeah. these terrifying stories mm, for sure and like part like part of the real power of that poem for me is like how it uh, takes this mechanic this story that could be uh, wielded like moralistically and use like a girl's death to like go oh don't do that or that will happen um and you take that mechanic and you humanize it and you um uh, take the real like stories and like shed light on like how the stories of different characters in the story are connected the story of x is the story of y you keep saying yeah, yeah that's really um i have a question if that's all right yeah um, so uh when we were we met like what a month ago like uh, you mentioned there was an emphasis in when you were talking about this story about like the the song element of right. the of the telling of the story and i wondered if that like the song element like had a part to play in the in like how the poem works like there's a lot of repetition in there was that informed by that maybe the story as it's originally told is so hooked on us on the song like even when it's transcribed in those different books when i found different versions you have the score of it like you know start in key a blah blah, blah. it's always presented as a song and how do you break out of that mm. um you know the uh uh a, a song seems a much more fixed entity than a kind of simple story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's the key, there's the key change. Um, uh, but I think one of the weird repetitions that I do, like a chorus, like a chorus is my way of, was my kind of conscious way of hinting at the song that is itself leaning on the story. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
can I ask how the song goes? <clears throat> you don't have uh, to sing it if you don't want to, but I would yeah. like to know the words. Yeah. <laughs> Exasperation overwhelms me. Yeah. What, what, what's one line of this story? Uh, if you know... If you na give me na akiana pass ya, if you na give me na akiana pass ya, dry river I go come and wash you away. And it always goes da 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 da. It's kind of like really whimsical, but I can see that if it's repeated and repeated and repeated, becoming incredibly creepy somehow. Yeah, and that is always the end of it. Dry river I go come and wash you away, and the dry river does come down and washes away the child. Um, so you kind of touch on it. In the poem where you talk about, I think, the girl's supposed stinginess. And I was just wondering if in any of the other versions of the story, there's a reason given as to why the girl doesn't offer up the toll. And if you were to, like, reimagine the story almost free of its, like, sinister patriarchal notions what reason would you give for why the girl doesn't give up the toll i don't know i think she's a capitalist (laughs) 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 Uh, 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 but but um no there's never a reason given other than her supposed selfishness um but but again i I guess I do wonder about why why do we make such demands of again from a little girl to give up something of herself and I think like one of the bigger lessons is to tell somebody that age that you can hold on to things for yourself that you don't have to give it up and suddenly I thought that I understand the lesson of being kind and generous but because it's always emphasized in some stories that she's the youngest mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. sisters I want to flip, flip that lesson on its head and say, well, no, I think, I think she was doing the right thing. Um, I think there is there is some dignity in that, and there is there's a way that she might save herself in that. What do you think, Boyega? Was she doing the right thing? Yeah, like I think if I had like some aki or whatever, <laughs> and I'm just trying to get home, then that's my aki, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. hungry. Yeah. So there are, yeah, the like similar vibes like Red Riding Hood. Do you think that at the same time this story is born from the people wanting simply to blame someone for weather <laughs> and for climate change? That that's exactly what I was thinking okay. as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that the to me the the story clearly must be p- at least partly based on the fact of uh, some girl, some child being washed away by the river coming down, which happens or which happened quite a lot and still happens. Uh, how do you make up a whole story about a tragedy like that? And you make up this story blaming the girl? <laughs> no, it's, it's just a simple tragedy. Um, but yeah, like, I, I wonder why, why we have to do that, why we have to explain tragedy by ap- applying guilt. Yeah, I think there's something like an environmental catastrophe that feels so overwhelming before which we feel so powerless. It's almost easier to do the thing that might feel much more venal or immoral in one sense is to give that an order, give that someone to point the finger at. 
Boyega, I think this is kind of something that you've tackled in your story. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So my myth is the book of Revelations and writings about the biblical judgment day as told in the book of Revelations and the gospel. When I've told people about this myth, they've kind of like chuckled because I was raised in a Christian household. So the idea of that as a myth is, yeah. Controversial? Controversial <laughs> is the word. Um, and so I wanted to look at that from the perspective of climate change, but thinking about those for whom climate change is happening right now and those for whom there are arguably greater concerns than climate change, mm. such as food and shelter. And obviously it's all linked, but someone is less likely to want to go on a march for climate change when they are worried about eating food tomorrow. And so the title of the poem is Epiphania, which is an old school biblical term, which basically means manifestation, specifically with regards to the coming of Christ, whether that be in the past or the future. And I've started the poem with a quote from a collective named Wretched of Earth, writing an open letter to Extinction Rebellion, saying, you may not realise that when you focus on the science, you often look past the fire and us. It was one day until the end of the world, and they said this one would be different, so I went to get a trim. I tried to get there in good time, the barbers would be overflowing. Everyone would want to be looking faultless in the eyes of the end. The men selling mixtapes, the women selling curry goats would be eager to get rid of all they had so that when it was time to leave, they could leave. The journey to the barbers was fine. The trees were fine. The sky was fine. All the people selling in the market had left and left their things behind. No one was handing out the evening newspaper because no one was reading. No one was reading because everyone had already let their families and their friends and the people they called their cousins know. And it was only those we did not know and those who did not know who read, but they didn't live here. The buses and the trains and the taxis had stopped because there was no one driving them. There were three or four people in front of me in the queue, but only one of the barbers was working. The others sat in their chairs making phone calls or staring out of the window. In the shop, we spoke about life and living, and sometimes someone would say something about the world and we'd talk about that. On the news there was something about longer days and the sea and burning. This was funny. Here, men spoke about how this time would compare to the others. They spoke about how they'd made arrangements and gathered their essentials. Original documents, fire extinguisher, water, rubber boat, bucket for the water. 
a filter through which the outside world would mourn, a pistol and five bullets, heirlooms, spices, things for remembering. On the news there was something about the near future and before it's too late. This was funny. Everything that was and is not yet is to come was funny. One by one men sat in the barber's chair and stood up again laughing, their grins big as the sun still gleaming, itself laughing. The shop was a pre-recorded laugh track. The shop was a wailing and gnashing of teeth. The shop was tragedy plus time. And I sat in the chair, a white gown on me, and I was seen and shown to myself. I nodded. The barber his hands, something sofa, turned me towards the window, said, Now, come look how it come, like say it a thief in the dark, but dark time gone now, only sun, and waiting for auntie when she come, clothed in sun and pomp, when she come in crown, on her black horse singing, now, then, can we say we know end? And outside were gathered those who didn't live here. Those about whom this ain't because they didn't know. They came with their numbers, their scripts and slogans and they spoke their truths. And it was and is not and yet is. And they were here to save us so we listened. They spoke of famines pestilences, earthquake, sea levels, fire, brimstone, disaster, death and dying. But they were too late because it had happened already. They said that there would be drought and thirsting, but we were thirsting already. They said we would go hungry, but we were starved already. The people we loved would go, but they had gone rounded up and taken it had happened the world would burn they said but it had burnt already i seen it on their news in their papers the smoke it had happened i swear we would all die they said but what was death if not a prerequisite for resurrection and were we not proof of glory were we not proof of holy were we not proof of funny were we not but they said this one would be different everyone would feel this one they didn't know it hadn't happened to them so they didn't know they didn't they ran around with their charts and their tears they were a weeping and gnashing of teeth just wanting to save but we couldn't be saved because we did know it had happened already so we did what we always do when the world ends we found home, we went there, closed the doors, closed the curtains, boarded the windows and we made food. We ate with our hands and mouths open, we laughed, we sang loud enough to drown it all out. The drowning, burning, weeping, the wailing, gnashing, we waited, sang, we held each other. And the rains descended, the flood came, and the rains descended the flood came. So talk to me about the us and the them. 
who are you thinking about when mm. you're writing that? I think it is, in my own mind, complicated. In terms of the content that I'm drawing from, I'm thinking about the us as being those in the global south where there is no 50 years, 80 years down the line, there are effects of global warming, climate change today. Also, I'm thinking of working class people and black and brown people who, and trans people and queer people who are going through struggles today born from sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, who, in my experience and in my own growing up, don't care too much for protesting about climate change, don't care too much for discussing climate change because there are other things more immediate to care about. Absolutely, where you're placed in society has everything to do with what the word the future means to you. And often it's talked about like we have that idea as like a given in common. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just thought that, I mean, not to put too academic a word on it, but it just sounded like you were delving into kind of Afrofuturities. Um, you know, how exactly how do you imagine certain futures for people who are denied futures and how does that change the conversation? But inserting kind of revelation in it was, I just thought, brilliant because you added so much of the rhythm of that community um, that, you, that you're talking about that we don't often hear from those people. But, but the rhythm of, of you know, because it wasn't just, you, you weren't just drawing on the Old Testament, you're drawing on the Old Testament as refracted through through their sound, which is a very different thing. I mean, could you tell us about how, how you did that, how you incorporated that into it? I think that the sounds of particularly the Old Testament and Revelations exist a lot in my poetry because I was raised in a Pentecostal church and I think that the language is just so beautiful and so I thought that this is something which I feel like very often I'm either consciously or unconsciously trying to mimic the pastors and preachers who I have sat through <laughs> willingly or unwillingly yeah. throughout my life. Right. What was it like writing as a myth or a speculative fiction, if you like, something that you grew up with as, as maybe true or given? I think that gave me the confidence to be irreverent and maybe take the piss a little bit because <laughs> yeah. it is a world and a language that I know. And so... I think that with all languages, we should have that liberty to use it however we want, maybe. Yeah, talk to me about the role of comedy 
in this piece because it crops up again and again. You say um, the shop was tragedy plus time. I assume picking up on that old idiom of comedy equals tragedy plus time. What's the function of that at you know, the end of the world? I think that there's a lot of functions. Similar to what Kai was saying earlier on about the human need to tell stories, I think that there is a similar need to tell jokes and to make fun of situations. And then also, if I'm sitting down at a family function and I mention climate change, people may very well laugh because it's ridiculous and they don't care and it's boring. And Why is that, you think? For the reasons that I've touched on, like, it is a part because maybe it is a language or rather a discussion that has been denied them by the fact that a lot of the dialogue surrounding climate change is an academic one, a white middle class one. And so there's that. And then I think just the act of laughing once it goes past a certain point maybe like five seconds too long it becomes really weird and twisted and scary i'm really interested in this the moment in the poem where the barber speaks because mm. i feel like there's a lot of like mention of like voice and like oh they said this they said this i wondered if you could talk about like you know what uh, is behind the, the barber having that voice and mm -hmm. coming forward and saying things. So that section draws very heavily from a particular part of Revelations where I think it's John is talking about all of the things that are going to happen just before Jesus comes. And there are verses such as the end of the days and the end of days will come like a thief in the dark. So you need to be ready. There is horsemen, I think. There is a woman who is clothed in the sun who comes and I think she has a baby. And then like some seven-headed dragon is trying to fight her and take the baby off her. And so for me... What I was trying to do is say that all of this earthly discussion of the end of the world, it's only when we see the like sky tearing apart, this woman coming down on a horse, that we might actually believe that the world is ending and that we might actually when it is far too late, do anything about it. But there, I mean, there, there are all kinds of good reasons for putting it in the barbershop. By the way, I mean, st like stupid, stupid, odd fact. Do you know that Cambridge did a study recently uh, looking for why students of color or potential students of color are not applying? And one of the reasons was there are not enough black barbers yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, like that's a serious reason, right? Like if mm -hmm. no one can yeah. do my hair, like why the hell am I going to go to yeah, school yeah, yeah. there? And I was just thinking about how the barbershop exists in black communities mm -hmm. as 
as a place of not just community but of prophecy of mm -hmm. of oracles yeah. um happening of of, of stories uh, being told and so i thought it was just so perfect to go from revelations to the barbershop where this kind of almost the modern day prophet mm. of the black community can continue to speak and connect to those two traditions at one time um yeah i i like that sorry, sorry there's no question in no there. yeah but but i i i love the barber so. what does that barbershop setting mean to you why when the rapture comes are you headed there again irreverence when the world is ending <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah i want to look good yeah. and then in the barbershop the wildest conversations take place like just people chatting shit people philosophizing people just who don't know maths trying to do maths and all sorts of things it's and then shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's just a weird Surreal, free, free surrealist yeah. yeah, yeah, a weird surreal <laughs> place. And for me, mentioning it like so early in the poem was just an attempt to root or place the poem immediately in my own experience, which is the black experience, which is growing up in black parts of London, going to barber shops, etc. Yeah, there's something really touching in the fact that despite the humour and irreverence of the poem, still when the rapture is coming, our instinct is to go home in whatever way that means to us, to be with the people we feel connected to that love us. Thank you for joining us for stories of rising rivers and global raptures and barbershops and green-leaved men wandering lost through the fields of Nottingham. And thank you so much to our guests, Kai Miller, Joshua Judson and Boyega Olibanjo. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny, and this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew. Our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. This project is supported by Arts Council England and the good folks at Spread the Word. You can check out all of the episodes from our past two series and find out more about our writers and their stories on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram. See you there. Sweet dreams and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>